Okay. Impressive. Wait, ladies? Any ladies? Oh, there you are. Okay, great. Excellent. Okay, good job, Handy. You might want to go back to the first chapter of James. We're talking about responding to the Word of God. And I said on Monday that my desire for you would be that you would have the proper reaction or the proper reception <clears throat> to the Word of God. You're going to have the opportunity this year to hear the Word of God, and I want you to respond to it properly. And we talked a little bit about that on Monday. Just a couple of uh, illustrations to start with. This uh, summer, as I said, I was in New Zealand. And one of the real great privileges I had in New Zealand was to speak to the Maori church. The Maoris are Polynesian people who were the original inhabitants of uh, the South Sea Islands, the original inhabitants of New Zealand. In fact, when they discovered New Zealand, they called it Aroitara. Uh, uh, I'll say it right, Aroitiara. Um, and that means the land of the long white cloud. Because when they were coming in their canoes to New Zealand, they saw what looked like a long white cloud. It turned out to be the southern Alps covered with snow. The, almost the length of the southern island of New Zealand is a, is a strip of the Alps uh, that, that are equal to the Alps, of course, in Europe. And that's why they're called the southern Alps covered with snow. Magnificent land. Well, they lived in that land. They developed their own culture, a wonderful culture, very musical culture. In fact, we sing some of their familiar melodies. Where There's a hymn we sing called... Search me, O God, and know my heart today. That's a Maori melody. But they love music. Uh, they love athletics. They, in fact, they make up the All Blacks for the most part, the great athletes on the, on the international rugby team, the All Blacks that are playing in South Africa right now for the world championships. Uh, they love athletics. They love life. They're a very happy, exuberant people. Uh, they do a, a haka thing, which is a real weird deal. Take their clothes off except to their... The shorts, uh, some kind of loincloth, and they get their eyes real big and they flap their tongues and pound their chests. And they, they would do that to scare their enemies. And it works. And even when they play rugby against South Africa, they get out on the middle of the field before the rugby match and they do this haka thing. And it's frankly a very frightening thing. Well, they, they, they do it also to welcome guests. They did it for me. About 40 men and it lasts about 15 minutes and they're sweating and perspiring you know, in this fierce welcome, which is very interesting. But anyway, uh, they're, they're just as aggressive and excitable when it comes to, uh, to, to worshiping the Lord. And their church service on Sunday starts at 9 in the morning and ends at 9 at night. And they have a, a huge meal in the middle of the day and then a lot of discipleship and they preach and they sing for hours and it's, it's great. Well, preaching to them is a tremendous joy because they're so responsive. Uh, they're just they're they're just sort of moving with you and oh mmm yes whoa praise the Lord huh, huh, everything you know they're just into this thing and it's an exciting kind of environment to preach it it they just pull it out of you because of their exuberance and I was comparing that in my mind with being in England where it's the absolute opposite they're stuffy and um, they just don't show any emotion. And I was preaching in Central Hall, right across from Westminster Abbey by the Thames River, right in the middle of London, to 900 pastors from all through England. And it was a very proper event. As English pastors are probably more stuffy than English people in many ways, you know. Many of them were Anglican, and it's a very high church kind of thing. And... Uh, this was a conference for 900 pastors right there in London. 
And they were sitting in this old, stuffy, musty central hall, uh, a magnificent place that seats about 4,000 people, so there were a lot of empty seats in the balconies. There were several balconies. And some of the greatest preachers in the world were at this conference. Dick Lucas from St. Helens Bishop's Gate, Eric Alexander, probably the greatest living expositor I mentioned to you yesterday or Monday, uh, and a guy from uh, Sydney, Australia, gifted expositor of the Word, and the whole thing was on preaching the Word with power. So in the first session in the morning, this guy from Australia came, gave a tremendous message, took a section of 2 Corinthians and just opened the Word of God, and it was moving and it was powerful. And uh, my own heart was just tremendously moved. And, and as I was sitting there listening to this, I was just enraptured by this tremendous teaching. I was noticing that nobody moved. Nobody made a peep. They just sat there, you know, like statues. And uh, when he was all finished, he sat down. There was a table beside the podium, and he sat down. The moderator of the meeting sits right here all the time you're preaching. And the guy finished preaching. He sat down. Nothing was said. As soon as he sat down, a guy walked up and said, Tea is served. And that was it. And I thought, you know, somebody ought to say thank you to this guy. That was a tremendous... I mean, this guy came from Sydney, Australia. You know, it's about a 24-hour flight to preach this message. And it was a powerful message. And tea is served? That was it. The next guy to preach uh, was um, Eric Alexander. And he opened up Isaiah 6 with such passion and such clarity, he said everything that could ever have been said about Isaiah 6, it was a masterpiece. And at one point, he was so exercised about the holiness of God, he began to weep. And he was literally, tears were running down his cheeks as he was preaching about the greatness of God and the brokenness of Isaiah out of Isaiah 6. And it was just a gripping message by one of the great preachers in our country, in our world. And he finished. This is right still in the morning. He sat down. The same guy walked up, says, tea is served. That was it. Absolutely no response. And I thought, boy, I'm in some deep trouble. I'm next. And it's very hard to move this crowd. I got up and preached my thing on, uh, on the Scripture. The same guy got up and said, after I was done, this is after lunch now, it's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and he said, tea is served. Same guy. That was it. Basically, no outward response at all. Um, so I went to dinner that night with Christopher Catherwood, who is the grandson of Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great expositor of London, now with the Lord, and former surgeon for the Queen. Anyway, his, his grandson, Christopher and I, he took me to the Oxford Cambridge Club. It's a 500-year-old club, and the only people who can go there are Cambridge and Oxford graduates, and he graduated from both places. So he qualified to take me there. So I went into this place, and it's, you know, it's like it's the place where Winston Churchill hung out. There's a room in there where they planned World War II. You know, it's one of those kind of places. So uh, I went in there, and, and we went into one room. He says, don't talk. No one has talked here for 350 years. This is the silent room. <laughs> I'm not going to mess with that, you know. <laughs> Just let me out of here. Um, you, you only can go in there and read. You can't speak. 
So we'll go to a room where you can talk. So we went into a room, there's massive brown overstuffed leather chairs and books that go clear to the ceiling. And you know, with a slider kind of uh, ladder so you can get what you want. And we sat down and I said, Christopher, I have to ask you a question. I just have to ask you a question. We just heard this tremendous preaching and this tremendous exposition of scripture. And this guy just keeps getting up and saying, tea is served. Uh, I mean, isn't there, isn't there an appropriate moment for thank you or what a blessing or tremendous truth? Oh, he said, oh, it's not done. It's not done. Not in England. I said, well, it ought to be. I said, you know, um, well, let me ask you another question. I said, <clears throat> when I was through preaching, I sat down by this guy who was the moderator. And it's a skirt around the table, you know, so you can't see. And while, as soon as I sat down, he didn't look any direction except straight ahead. But he reached his hand over and patted my leg three times. I said, Christopher... What does that mean? He says, he did? I said, I said, oh, it's huge. That was huge in England. Three pats. So nobody could see you looking, you know. Um, <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is <clears throat> some people respond overtly <clears throat> to the teaching of the Word of God. And some people don't. But if you, if I, if I can say after all of that, the superficial response really isn't the issue. There is a greater issue. Let's go to James one. And look at the text again. Verse twenty-two. Let's pick it up where we left off. Verse twenty-two. But prove yourselves what? Doers of the word. And not merely hearers. I mean, the issue here is not so much how you hear. On the one hand, it is not so much whether you are hearing with exuberance and, and all of that kind of stuff. Or on the other hand, whether you're hearing with uh, somewhat of an apparent uh, diffidence or indifference. Uh, really, that isn't the issue. The issue is what happens in your life when you're done with your initial response, right? Now, you remember on Monday, we looked at verses 19 to 21. And uh, we pointed out the fact that you are to be quick to hear the Word of God. You are to receive the Word with submission. Slow to teach it, to speak, and slow to anger. You submit to the Word of God. You learn to be a good listener. Take every opportunity for the input of the Word of God. You're going to have many, as I pointed out. Use every opportunity to be eager to hear the Word of God but slow to speak, slow to give your opinion about it, your interpretation of it. Be a learner. There are people around here who know the Word of God and they know it deeply and richly and widely and learn to listen and be slow to speak. There's much to learn and your time for speaking will come. And then he says also there, slow to anger. And he's talking about an underlying resistance or an underlying rebellion with that 
Greek word. When the Word of God comes to you, and it maybe isn't what you're used to hearing, or it's new, or it's different than you've heard in the past, or it confronts something that you've already constructed as a conviction, or an idea, or a concept in your mind, or it tears a little bit at your worldview, or the way you live your life, or it confronts some sin, don't develop a deep-seated resentment toward that. Be teachable. Be open. Have a disposition of a learner. Because the anger of man can never achieve, verse 20 says, the righteousness of God. God wants to work righteousness in your life through the Word. And you have to be eager to hear, slow to come to jumping, jumping to conclusions and articulating things, and you have to be slow to develop any resistance to what you hear or you will not achieve the righteousness of God. Secondly, we said, not only do you need to be willing to receive the word with submission, but with purity. Remember verse 21? Putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. If sin is in your life, it completely clouds your ability to hear the word of God. You begin to justify your sin. You begin to filter all of that, to twist it, move it around so that it accommodates you. You're in some serious problems. You need to set aside all filthiness and all that remains of any sin in your life. Deal with that before God on a daily basis so that you can receive the Word. As uh, we quoted also in 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2, Peter says essentially the same thing. Receive the Word with submissiveness. Receive it with purity. And then lastly, with humility. Remember the middle of verse 21. In humility, receive the Word implanted. Let it get planted in your heart, that word which you already know is able to save your soul. So the reception of the word is what we talked about money. Now let's go to that second point, the reaction to the word. That's what we're talking about this morning. It isn't really just a matter of how you take it in. It's a matter of how you live it out. And that takes us into verse 22. Prove yourselves doers of the word. Important to hear, but not enough. The word that is powerful enough to save your souls is also powerful enough to change your life, but you have to be willing to put it into practice. Be doers of the word. Literally, be continually. Guinness that. Be continually. As a pattern of life, a word doer. It's a characterization. It's a, it's a habitual occupation. A doer of the word by life habit. A life of, uh, Robert Johnstone says, a life of holy energy. A life of holy energy. In other words, the truth of the word of God energizes all that you do. Be doers and not merely hearers. Like so many, you know what the word for hearer is? It's a word in the, um, in the Greek, akroata, which literally in Greek means an auditor. Sometimes when people come to college, they audit a class. What that means is they can go and listen without having to make any contribution or do any work. Don't be an auditor. Don't be an auditor of the Word of God. Don't audit the Word of God. Don't just sit and listen, having the privilege to hear, but no commitment to apply and do the work. That is a tragic thing in the Christian experience. 
It's a tragic thing in, 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 the, in the life of a non-believer. Go back to Matthew 7 for a moment and, and just to pick up what Jesus said at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, which is a very important, important statement. As he brings the Sermon on the Mount to conclusion, and by the way, it's an evangelistic sermon, it was, a, it was an attempt to do something along the lines of what Brent was noting from Philippians 3, the Jews had a self-righteousness system, which was really nothing but dung and rubbish, but they spent their whole life building it up. And Jesus wants to demolish it, so he comes in and smashes their self-righteousness system in the Sermon on the Mount, starting in Matthew 5. It runs through three chapters. They were counting on salvation by fasting, and so he dismantled their fasting. Salvation by repetitious prayer, so he dismantled that. Salvation by almsgiving, so he dismantled that. Salvation by work, so he dismantled that. He just absolutely smashed their whole system to ribbons. And then he comes to the final statement. After having done all of that and told them the truth, verse 24, Matthew 7, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them, may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock, and the rain descended and the floods came, and the winds blew and burst against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. The issue, Jesus says, is now you have heard what I said, and the man who hears and acts is the man who is the wise man. By the way, the rain and the flood symbolizes judgment. And when judgment comes which is described here as wind blowing and smashing against the house, it's not going to fall. Why? Because this person did what I said. On the other hand, verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand and the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and burst against that house and it fell and great was its fall. The issue is simply this what you do with what you hear. And that's true in salvation. Churches, I believe, are filled with people who hear but never act, who hear the truth and never believe it. The epistle to the Hebrews basically has that thrust all the way through it. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, he says in chapter 2, which you've heard, which was confirmed to you by the by the signs and wonders done by the apostles. Well, later on in chapter 6, he says, if you come all the way to the edge of salvation and fall away, you'll never be able to be renewed again to repentance because you've rejected with full light. In chapter 10, he says the same thing in Hebrews. If you sin willfully in rejecting Christ, after you've had the knowledge of the truth, you will be subject to greater judgment, greater punishment in eternal hell. So the whole call of the book of Hebrews is come all the way to Christ. Come all the way to Christ. Earlier he says, don't harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts. And as I've said often through the years, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. While the gospel melts the heart of some, it hardens the heart of others who reject and resist. And Jesus is saying in Matthew 7, you heard my words and now act on those words in saving faith. Put your trust in me. Humble yourselves and repent. Turn from your self-righteous ways. So even at the point of the gospel, there is a constant plea 
not just to hear, but to hear and do. In fact, to hear and not come to Christ is to incur a greater judgment, which means a more severe hell. Sometimes people ask me if, uh, if there will be degrees of punishment in hell. Absolutely. Of how much sorer punishment shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the blood of the covenant and counted it as an unholy thing? If you trample the gospel in unbelief when you know the gospel, there's a greater punishment in hell for you than one who never knew the gospel. So when you hear, you must believe or you will suffer greater consequences. So what is privilege on the one hand is terrible responsibility on the other to the one who rejects. Now with that in mind, just as an initial emphasis, go back to uh, James. The same principle works in the life of a believer. Now that you have heard the gospel and you have believed, you must continue to be a doer of the word. And he says here, Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. The sad thing about a person who just hears is he is deluded. What does that word mean? It just means deceived. It just means deceived. It, it, in fact, it is actually a mathematical word. And it means to miscalculate. To miscalculate. If you just hear the Word of God and do not do it, you are making a major miscalculation. When you hear that the Word says, study to show yourself approved unto God, and you don't do that, that is a serious miscalculation of the importance of that command. If the Scripture says, pray always with all prayer and supplication, and you fail to do that, that is a serious miscalculation with implications. Self-deception. Even the person who listened to the gospel in Matthew 7, listened to Jesus preach and didn't do it, still built a religious house, still went on with his life, building up his house, just never had a foundation. What self-deception? You see, that the flood comes and smashes the house to the ground. And those are the people who are going to say, Lord, Lord, we did this in your name and we cast out demons and we prophesied and did many wonderful works in Matthew 7:20, and Jesus is going to say to them, Depart from me, I never knew you. The self-deceived. John Bunyan said, For many people the entrance to hell will be from the portals of heaven. They think they're on the way to heaven and they're going to be in hell because they've been deceived. When you hear and you don't apply, you're continuing in a state of self-deception. Can I be so bold as to say this? Better you shouldn't be here. Better you should be at Cal State Northridge, where you're not going to train yourself not to respond to Scripture. If you get in a mode here where you listen to the Word of God and do not respond to it and do not act on it and do not put it into practice, the more you do that, the harder your heart becomes, the better you train your conscience to be indifferent to the Word of God. That is a serious issue. You would be better to be apart from the Word of God and not training yourself to do that. Starting at the very beginning, when you hear the Word of God and its impact upon your life is clear, you need to act in a responsible and obedient way or you will begin to train yourself in a terrible deception. And part of that deception will go like this. Well, I didn't didn't study the Word of God. I'm not faithful in my prayers. I'm not careful about what I engage in in terms of 
things that are righteous as opposed to things that are unrighteous. But hey, I'm still alive. I got an A on my exam. Life goes on. I got a boyfriend. I got a girlfriend. I'm going to the beach this weekend. Uh, everything's fine. I, you know, I haven't heard any bolts out of heaven. I haven't been struck by lightning. There's no disaster. And that's part of the self-deception. You want to train yourself from the very outset to apply the Word of God daily. Now go on with me in verse 23. And here, in order to explain this truth in the idea of a deception, he uses an analogy. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. Once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Did you ever see a guy who shaved half his mustache? No. I've, that's happened many times to me. I see a guy and I kind of laugh. He shaved half his mustache. What happened? He got a phone call halfway through. Left the mirror. Forgot to go back and check. Uh, you ever see a girl with one earring? Sure. Or maybe uh, part of the makeup is there and part of it isn't. Or none of it is there and a little would help. In some cases, if you're old enough, Please don't take it personally. But, you know, every, every old barn needs a little paint. I mean, you know, it preserves. You, you know what I'm saying. Well, the, the point is, you know, I mean, some guys will walk out of the room and maybe a guy will catch him in the hall and tell him he's got shaving cream on half of his face. What happened? Something interrupted him. He looked in the mirror. He walked away. And as soon as you're away from the mirror, you forget what you look like. That's, that's a simple analogy. In other words, he's just giving sort of an axiom here, just a self-evident fact. If anyone, generically, is a hearer of the word and not a doer, James simply says he's like somebody who looks into a, a mirror. Small mirrors, by the way, in ancient times, just a little note of history, were made out of uh, polished bronze. Bronze is a mixture between copper and tin. Sometimes, if you were wealthy enough, they were made out of silver, and really wealthy people had gold mirrors. Glass mirrors were not yet used, and silver-coated glass, like we know today as a mirror, didn't even come in until the 13th century. So in the time of Scripture, they would have had some metal kind of mirror that would have been a bit of an imperfect reflection. You can't get an absolutely perfect surface uh, with metal and uh, generally adequate for a, for a fairly accurate view. And so he says here, you, you go and you look carefully at your face in the mirror, but once you go away, you, you forget what you saw. And that's how it is with the Scripture. Because you didn't act on what you saw in the mirror, the Word of God, you never remember really what you're like. He didn't act on what he saw when he saw it, and he won't remember when he walks away. You forget. How many times? I can think of that many times in my own life. When I've gone off half-shaven because I use an electric razor, I get a phone call, and then I get to looking at my watch, and I'm gone, and I show up at the office, and they're all snickering. And that's just life. That's how it is. Sometimes you forgotten to put your tie on when you had a place for appropriate uh, wearing of a tie. It's too hot today to wear a tie. 
Then in verse 25, he follows up the analogy. One who looks intently at the perfect law. By the way, the perfect law is Scripture. The law of liberty, it's called, because it sets you free and abides by it. And is not a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. Here it is. This man shall be what? Blessed. I don't know about you, but I want to be blessed. I want to be blessed by God. When you look, literally the word here for looking intently, it's a very strong word. Parakupto, it means to stoop down and look into something, to bend over and examine it with precision. When you look carefully into the Word of God, you look thoughtfully into the Word of God, implies stooping actually is a part of the verb. Because para means to kind of go down. It has the idea of stooping and humbling and looking intently. And when you do that and you look into the perfect law, that's a grand title, by the way, for Scripture. God's perfect law. His perfect word called the law of liberty. Why? Because it frees us from sin's bondage. It frees us from sin's slavery. It brings us to the glorious hope of eternal liberation as the sons of God. It frees us from the curse of the law. It frees us from the search for truth. It frees us to do what we were originally created to do. And it frees us to participate in all the blessings of God. It liberates us. And when you look into it and you abide in it, and not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, you put it into practice, you're going to be blessed in what you do. It's just that simple, young people. It's just reminiscent, really, of Joshua 1.8. If you will commit yourself to looking into the Word of God and obeying it, you're going to be blessed. Listen to Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night. Here it comes so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. Let me tell you something. I can assume that you've come to college here because you want to be a success. You're coming. You're going through four years of effort. You're going to spend a lot of money. Your parents are going to spend a lot of money. You're going to put a tremendous amount of work. Hearing more of our heart and passion. The world belongs to the thinkers and the writers. You're going to learn how to relate to people in a social environment that's going to enhance your people's skills, and that is a marketable commodity. In fact, if you can think and write and work with people and solve problems, you can get hired almost anywhere, no matter what your specific field might be. And 85% of college graduates have a career in a field other than their major. What they're looking for is people with skills and people with ability to communicate, who can think, solve problems, lead you're going to learn those things, and you're going to make a difference in the world, and it's going to make a difference in what you're capable of doing in the future. But the most important level of success that you want is going to be in that spiritual dimension so that you're not out there trying to crank your own life out purely on the basis of your human capability, but rather you're in the flow of the blessing of God, which is the, the gravy on the whole thing, which is the, which is the pinnacle. And if you want that success, then you do what is written in the Word of God. And God paves the way for your prosperity and your success. I don't want to live my life apart from the blessing of God. As I told you on Monday about my friend Steve Jones who said, I'm playing golf knowing it's just me and I don't have the blessing of God in my life. What a horrible feeling. The success that you want most is when God pours out His blessing. So... 
The one who looks intently at the perfect law and abides in it, doesn't forget, but puts it into practice, that's the man who's going to be blessed. Daily application, daily application of the Word of God. That's going to make you what God wants you to be. That's going to allow God to pour out His blessing all over your life. So, two things to keep in mind. How you receive the Word and how you practice the Word. Be an eager listener. Take it in every opportunity you have. But remember, that can be counterproductive and self-deceiving and hardening if you are not responding and reacting with obedience. And this obedience is very, very practical. I mean, very practical. Look at verses 26 and 27, and I'll close with just reading them. Here, here's what you'll see in a godly person. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religious religion is worthless. The first thing that's going to happen is <clears throat> we're going to see that your walk with God is pure and that you're living out the Word of God by what you say. Pure speech. Secondly, verse 27, this is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Can I categorize that? You're going to love others. If you're applying the Word, it's going to come out in your speech and in your attitude toward others. Your conversation and your relationships to other people who need your care and your love and your service and your sacrifice. And thirdly, you're going to keep oneself unstained by what? By the world. If you are responding to the Word of God, pure speech, loving care for others, and holy living will show it. That's my prayer for you. That is the belief that behaves. You have a tremendous opportunity to take all this in and a tremendous responsibility to put it back out in the matter of your living. Pray with me. Father, thank you again for every precious person here, every faculty member, staff member, every young person. Lord, how grateful we are that you have brought us all together. And Lord, we know you've done it because you want to work a work in our life. Not all, by any means, of the young people who would want to be here are here. All across this world, there are many who would long to be here. But we're here. And this privilege demands a great response. To take a place at the Master's College and not make the most of it would really be to show disdain for your grace and the privilege we have. And we know that what that means for us is that we be receiving the Word with submission, with purity, with holiness, and that we be living it back out with pure speech, loving care for others, and an unstained life. Work your Word in us, Lord and work it back out for your glory in Christ's name. And everybody said, Amen. Have a great day.